Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax and enjoy as you fall asleep. Today we are reading from the book The Rambler Club's Ball Nine by W. Crispin Shepard. Shepard authored many books in the Ramblers Club series. However, outside of a list of his books, we were not able to find much information about him. He wrote and created the illustrations for all his books. We encourage any of our listeners who are so inclined to create a Wikipedia page for him and at least list all his books that you can find. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ underscore media underscore podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. The Rambler Clubs Ball 9 By W. Crispin Shepard Illustrated by the author Introduction The Rambler Club of Kingswood, Wisconsin, formed by Bob Summers and his friends, Dave Brandon, Tom Clifton, Dick Travers, and Sam Randall, after having numerous adventures in their own state, visit Oregon, Wyoming, Washington, and New York. In the mountains, on the plains, or deep amidst the forest the five lads taste the joys, and also the trials, of outdoor life, and in most unexpected or thrilling situations manage to acquit themselves with credit. In the east, a houseboat trip up the Hudson furnishes the club an eventful journey, while on a motoring trip from Chicago to Kingswood another series of surprising and unusual events befall them. The adventures of the Rambler Club are told in the following books, The Rambler Club Afloat, The Rambler Club's Winter Camp, The Rambler Club in the Mountains, The Rambler Club on Circle T Ranch, The Rambler Club Among the Lumberjacks, The Rambler Club's Gold Mine, The Rambler Club's Aeroplane, The Rambler Club's Houseboat, and The Rambler Club's Motor Car. Now the lads are back at the Kingswood High School, from which they will graduate at the end of the term. Fired with an ambition to put new life into the athletic affairs of the school, Bob Summers and his friends take a hand and work some surprising changes. Their zeal and enthusiasm were further aroused by a certain offer made to the school by the town's most wealthy citizen, Mr. Rupert Berry. The Rambler Club's Ball Nine, however, greatly to the boys' astonishment, becomes the means of plunging the entire school into the most turbulent period of its existence. No one can foresee the outcome of the factional struggle until it has ended in a manner quite as surprising as the disturbance itself. When the atmosphere finally clears observing students of the high feel that they have learned many valuable lessons. W. Crispin Shepard The Rambler Club's Ball Nine Chapter One The New Ball Field Great Scott Maybe that chap can't run. You're right, Earl. 
but it will take more than wanting to beat the stars and Goose Hill Fellows to say nothing of Rockville Academy. That crowd over there certainly has a corking team. Say, Roycroft, you ought to be on Bob Summers 9. Earl Roycroft, a six-foot boy weighing almost 200 pounds, settled his big frame in a more comfortable position on the rail fence. His eyes mechanically followed the runners speeding one after another around a lot used by the Kingswood High School students as a baseball and training field. Why? It isn't Bob Summers' team, it's the school's, Nat, he protested, mildly. Nat Wingate, a handsome, dark-haired boy with flashing brown eyes, smiled. Well, Summers seems to be having things pretty much his own way, he answered. While I was captain, last year, it was mighty different. Stand up for your rights, Roycroft. The team needs a great big chap like you. And, great Scott, but he can sprint. Well, it would be mighty funny if a fellow who has such long legs as Tom Clifton couldn't sprint returned Nat dryly. The crisp crack of a bat suddenly attracted his attention. Then he caught sight of the ball describing a long, graceful curve. He watched the sphere flashing against the blue sky until it had reached such a height as to appear but the merest speck, and then as it swiftly dropped and was plucked from space by a slender boy in the outfield. Good catch for Charlie Blake, exclaimed Roycroft. And there was some class to the hit, too, commented now I don't think any of the Rambler fellows swung the stick on that one. Whoever he is, I wouldn't mind having him on my team. Humph. Don't you recognize that chap? It's Joe Rogers. Gee whiz. The young fellow the Ramblers brought back with them on their motor car trip last fall? Exactly, laughed Earl. Dave Brandon has been looking out for Joe and got him a job on Mr. Miles' farm. He goes to school every day with a lot of little chaps about half his age. But Mr. Miles says, from the way Joe's learning, he'll soon put all his high school fellows in the has-been class. Come on, Nat. I want to get a whack at that ball myself. Nat Wingate eased himself off the fence, flecked a few spots of dust from his clothes, and followed the big form of Earl Roycroft. My crowd is going to get the first whack at the Rambler Club's ball nine, Roy, he exclaimed. A peculiarly sarcastic expression came over his face as Roy flung back. Cut that out, Nat. You mean the school team. Last season we trimmed the Goose Hill bunch, went on Wingate. You know what a husky lot they are. Tony Tippin was in the box for us. If any of the scouts from the big leagues ever get to this Burke, I shouldn't wonder a bit if they'd snap him up. I'd be satisfied with the miners, laughed Earl. Phew. The air is kind of chilly today, Nat Roger Steele didn't think he'd have the boys practicing outside of the gym until next week. Great Scott, but that fellow can sprint. Wonder if he learned the trick by having wildcats chase him out of the woods, laughed Nat, ha, ha. We met one once. 
John Hackett and our crowd ran across the Ramblers on their first trip, and a salvo of cheers suddenly interrupted his sentence, and upon looking up to see the cause of it, the captain of the Kingswood Stars saw a stout, round-faced boy advancing leisurely to the home plate. Ah, ah, we're going to see the new editor of the high school reflector in action. Did you read the last copy of that sheet, Earl? Roycroft nodded. Sure thing, Nat Dave has written a history of the Rambler Club. The first installment appears in the reflector's next issue. Guess there isn't a fellow in the school who won't dive into his pocket for a nickel. Hello, Spearman. A boy almost as tall as himself, but of a lighter build, stepped from among a crowd of noisy students and walked toward them. Harry Spearman had prominent aquiline features and a manner which suggested a nervous, high-strung disposition. I tell you, Roycroft, these fellows are going to give a good account of themselves, he began. Steele and Summers have just the right idea of training. Don't push your men too hard, they say, but keep them always on the move. Roger Steele soon have a crowd of base runners that will make some of the fellows on the other teams look as slow as so many ice wagons. A shade crossed Earl's face. Bob Summers had often expressed the opinion that if the big fellow only possessed a little more speed he would make one of the best players in the school. But while Roycroft was good at almost every other angle of the game, he was sometimes apt to slip up when quick action was absolutely necessary. Better not boast too much, Harry, grin now wait until the Ramblers stack up against the stars. We expect to pull off a few plays that may make him seem like Neverwassers. The Rockville Football 11 came over last fall, you know, and Bob Summers' crowd didn't cut any great figure in the game. Harry Spearman's eyes snapped scornfully. Suppose they did beat us? That isn't much to brag about, he retorted. When the Ramblers got back to school this term, there was no athletic association. Everything was disorganized. You know that, Wingate. Gee. Another dandy hit, broke in Roycroft. Dave Brandon certainly smacked the ball that time. Look at it, still sailing. I'll bet it's bound for Rockville. Of course you do, Nat, went on Harry, paying no attention to this interruption. Before, it was all hit or miss, mostly miss, and nobody seemed to care. Correct, added Earl. Bob plunged right in and, with up-to-the-minute plans, got the athletic association started, football and baseball committees formed, and made arrangements with all the various schools around to play a regular schedule of games. Oh, I suppose he has your big colleges beaten to a frazzle on the fine points of the game, exclaimed Nat with a barely perceptible sneer. Earl Roycroft laughed softly. He knew that it wouldn't take much to start a lively wrangle between Wingate and Spearman as Nat was of a highly impetuous nature, while the latter's principal characteristics were nervousness and excitability. But he found it easy to stem the tide of belligerency which seemed on the point of beginning. Freshmen, sophomores, 
juniors and seniors, mingling in a fraternal spirit, formed scattered groups all over the lot, occasionally yelling with as much vigor and enthusiasm as though about to witness a championship game. Many wore purple and white sweaters, and these garments added a touch of bright color to the still barren landscape. There's Jack Frost in the box, fellows, remarked Earl. He has a slow ball that will puzzle the Rockville boys. I've been up against it, and I know. Comes so slow that you almost fall asleep waiting for it to pass over the plate. William Frost was the name of the player in question, though, of course, his schoolmates generally called him Jack. And Tony Tippin has an ins hoot that would make the Cannonball Express look like a slow freighter, laughed Nat G. I wish the next two weeks would roll around fast. I guess you high school fellows are in for a pretty hard jolt. We hate to do it, too, for this is a mighty poor ball field, and a few lambastings will probably knock all that fine Rupert Berry business in the head. Oh, it will, eh, sniffed Spearman. Next season the purple and white team will be using that new ballpark and we'll have a grandstand, besides. Sorry to have to put that happy train of thought off the track, chuckled Nat, have you forgotten the Goose Hill crowd and a few others? It wouldn't faze us if they were major leaguers. Hello, you pie-eaters, hello. Where's the rest of the Doma crowd? This hail, coming in very gruff tones from the tall sprinter who had excited Earl Roycroft's admiration, made Nat Wingate's eyes glitter ominously. The nerve of that Tom Clifton is getting my nerve, he commented in a low tone. It beats me how some of the chaps are willing to swallow all he hands out. He doesn't seem to like the idea of a swallowing pie, laughed Roycroft. By this time, the tallest singer in the school had almost reached the group. Tom Clifton, bubbling over with good spirits, I neck quizzically. Still making the pies over at Guffins do the disappearing act, he asked. Yes. And the donuts are following the same route. How is it that Kirk Talbot didn't come over to see us practicing? Kirk had something more important on hand. He went to a moving picture show instead. I'll bet it was a nickel one, snickered Tom. We're getting ready for your crowd, Nat thanks, Roycroft. I can go some. I'll do better yet. Wait till you see me making the circuit of the bases. And when we get that new field, well, we'll make some of the pioneers and Doma crowd lose their appetites. Tom Clifton's gaze roved over the rather uneven field, which was situated some distance from the rear of the Kingswood High School. Great patches of weeds and small saplings had been leveled to the ground in hollow places filled in by the willing hands of the boys. But even all the zeal and enthusiasm with which they had worked could not make the result of their labor a joy and delight. This particular field seemed to have a grudge against all athletic sports. Treacherous little bumps or depressions, as well as other irregularities, had often spoiled what might have been brilliant plays. And now, Tom reflected, after a whole winter of neglect, 
conditions looked more unpromising than ever. It did not at all fit in with his ideas of what the Kingswood High School boys deserved, especially when he considered the new lease of life which Bob Summers, ably assisted by his friends, had injected into the athletic affairs of the school. To the north, the three-story stone building of the school, the center of which was surmounted by a cupola, shone brightly in the afternoon sun. Beyond the residences which hemmed in the large lot on all sides several towers and domes indicated the business portion of Kingswood. It all made a very pleasing picture. But Tom Clifton did not allow his thoughts to stray very long from the actual work in hand. He was too anxious to get in the thick of the fray again and pull down some of the skyscrapers which little Joe Rogers was batting out with remarkable precision. Say, Nat, that chap is a corker, he declared. Stand wherever you please and he'll put the horse hive right into your hands. Gee, see that. What? asked Nat. Why, the way Blake picked up Dave's grounder, one-handed, too. By Jove, it was a scorcher. Where are you going, Roycroft? To bat, answered Earl with a laugh. Come on, Spearman. Good. Try to knock me down. I'll show you a few fancy stunts, Nat. We are reserving ours until Saturday week, returned Wingate. That's right, Tom. Snicker all you want. But it's the Snickers which come after the game that count. Tom's reply was not audible as there was too much noise. Some hundred schoolboys, whose vocal organs were in excellent condition, seemed to be desirous of learning just how much sound they could produce at a given moment. Bob Summers had pulled down one of Joe Rogers' drives after a long, hard run, and although the force of the impact had sent him rolling over and over on the ground, the sphere was safe in his hands. Bully, bully, cried Tom as the shouts subsided. See you later, Nat. Hold on, Tommy, said Wingate. A quizzical smile was playing about his lips. A restraining hand seized Tom Clifton's wrist. Anything the matter with your optics today, son? Why, queried Tom in surprise. Haven't they lied on anything yet, eh? Yes. A whole lot of dandy plays. That isn't what I mean. The earnest manner of his companion made Tom eagerly scan the field. He saw a dozen balls flying about in all directions, students in purple and white sweaters dashing from place to place, and Jack Frost engaged in sending in a variety of curves to fill Brentall, the backstop. He also saw the ball being snapped from first to third and back again with great rapidity. But the fact that he was not looking in the right direction was speedily impressed upon his mind when Nat shoved him around in a most unceremonious fashion. Now what do you see? demanded Nat. Gee was goodness gracious, cried Tom, Mr. Rupert Barry. Chapter 2 Mr. Barry a tall, thin man who, although somewhat elderly, seemed to walk with all the alertness of youth, 
was directing his course toward the players. He wore a long, faded, dusty-looking black coat and a derby hat of an equally old appearance. Mr. Rupert Barry, one of the best-known and wealthiest citizens of Kingswood, had retired from active business many years before and, with only a man and wife who acted as housekeepers, resided in a stately mansion which crowned the summit of a hill. Mr. Barry was not partial to visitors. Only a select few had entered his doors. Those who did spoke enthusiastically of a collection of bric-a-brac and paintings which his house contained. None of the present generation remembered having ever seen Mr. Barry in other than his old-fashioned coat and derby hat. It was a standing puzzle whether the coat and hat refused to be worn out or whether, by some mysterious process, he was able, year in and year out, to procure garments of exactly the same color and texture. Mr. Barry seldom appeared without a dog to keep him company. And these animals, which had succeeded one another up to the present time, generally possessed but little beauty. On this occasion the dog, which kept close to the elderly gentleman's heels, was a large, shaggy creature of a yellowish hue with a quarrelsome look in his eye. Now it's time to get on the field and pull off some of those pretty stunts, Tom advised Nat Wingate. It may make him take down a few of those no trespassing signs on that lot of his. That's right, laughed Tom. It fairly bristles with them. Trespassers dealt with according to law, private property, no thoroughfare, keep out, anyone found depositing ashes or refuse on this lot will be prosecuted. Have I missed any, Nat? Just one, chuckled Wingate, over on the northeast corner, intruders will be promptly ejected. It's a wonder he hasn't a few gathling guns planted around. And just to think, mused Tom, he's going to give that feel to us. Well, I like your cheek, blazed out now you must think you're the whole show. Do you know what my idea is? Guess I will in a minute. Mr. Barry knows it's such a safe proposition that you fellows will get trimmed all around. Oh, get out, you pie-eater, howled Tom. Take a donut. It looks like a cipher, meaning nothing for you. We can eat up lots of things besides donuts, said Nat, sarcastically. I'm going to trail Mr. Rupert Barry. So am I. As they walked briskly toward the scene of action, the noise and the cracks of the bats seemed to be greater than ever. By this time, Mr. Barry had almost reached the high board fence, which served as a backstop and scoreboard. It was at once observed that Dave Brandon had stopped practicing and was coming forward to meet their visitor. Bob Summers, too, was walking in from the outfield. By Jupiter, they're almost falling over themselves. Jeered now I want to hear some of the soft stuff they hand out. Bet they'll have a tremolo in their voices. Nat Wingate had the ability to provoke a wrangle at almost any moment. A hot flush mounted to Tom's face. He was too eager, however, to learn the reason for Mr. Barry's descent upon the ball field to reply. 
in and out through the noisy groups he led the way, soon hearing above the medley of sound the harsh, rasping voice of Kingswood's eccentric citizen. I never could understand why boys have to make such a confounded racket while they're playing ball, he jerked out, impatiently. Good energy all gone to waste. Lie down, Canis. The yellow dog seemed to have taken a great dislike to the proceedings going on all about him and was giving voice to this feeling by a series of savage snarls and barks. Long distance conversation for me, laughed Wingate. His ivories seem to be in good working condition. I'll bet he's as yellow inside as out, chuckled Tom. One good kick. And any hope for your ball field would be gone forever. Don't stop for me, Summers. Mr. Barry was speaking. He waved a large, knotty cane peremptorily in the direction of the outfield. Get right back to your place. His stick struck sharply against the wooden fence. Here, here, you boys over there, quit that howling, quit it, I say. Get right back to your place. The students who had been applauding a difficult pickup by Charlie Blake obeyed his authoritative command. That's better. What's the use of howling like a pack of young pirates? If it ain't any use, it's lots of fun, mister. A stocky, freckle-faced boy handling a very large bat gave this answer. And sometimes it puts a whole lot of ginger into the crowd, he added. What's your name? Joe Rogers. Do you go to the high school? Keep quiet, Canis. Not yet, sir. Then why are you practicing on this field? Cause they let me. As bold as brass, murmured Mr. Barry in audible tones. Summers, I believe I requested you to keep right on with your playing. Mr. Barry looked at the captain of the nine as sternly as though he were some culprit caught trespassing on his field. The afternoon sun played on an angular, smooth-shaven face and a pair of cold gray eyes. There was nothing in his expression to indicate any great sympathy with youth or their pastimes. But it was observable that, even as he spoke, his gaze was continually shifting from one group to another. This is the first day we have practiced outside of the gym, Mr. Barry, began Bob. You see, it was such a bully day. I must request that you eliminate such words as bully when addressing me, interrupted the visitor, stiffly. Would you like to have a little bat out and catch, Mr. Barry? asked Nat Wingate in a very innocent tone. I know you of old, Wingate, returned the other frigidly. You may direct your remarks elsewhere. What did you say, Brandon? That we seem to be rounding out in pretty good shape, Mr. Barry, and I didn't come over to hear any boasting. His figure rounded out in pretty poor shape years ago, so I'm told, put in a tall, aggressive-looking lad to whom Nat had just beckoned. Mr. Barry turned sharply upon him, took a good look, and then remarked, I don't think I ever saw you before, boy. I don't think I ever saw you before either.
And what might your name be? Owen Lawrence. You see, our folks just moved to Kingswood. Of course I had to go to school somewhere, and so I'm a student at the high. And if you have any sense you'll stick there until you get a good education, snapped the irascible old gentleman. Drat that confounded dog. Keep still, Canis. If you boys have as much spirit in training as he is out of training you'll do. Now don't stand around gaping as if you've never seen a man before. Go back to practice. Mr. Barry had a way about him which impelled obedience to his will. For fully 15 minutes, under his critical observation, the boys played with a dash and vim that might have brought a smile of approval from almost anyone else. Then, without a word of comment, he waved his knotty stick in the direction of the captain of the nine and, closely followed by the yellow dog, stalked back in the direction from whence he had come. Chapter 3 The Retreat Not far from the high school, at the end of a long row of houses, stood an unpretentious two-story frame building painted white. Big black letters almost covering the width of the house announced that therein was located Terry Guffin's student retreat. Terry had lived in the White House long enough to know generation after generation of schoolboys. His pies, donuts, and cakes were famous, so were his chops. And many an old grad who had left his student days far behind found it convenient to return to Kingswood so that he might see the round, red face of Mr. Guffin and once more partake of his tasty wares. The interior of the student retreat was filled with interesting souvenirs of school life, photographs, sketches, bits of writing, each possessing a significant steer to the heart of Terry Guffin. There were rather curious paintings, too, on door panels or over mantelpieces, which showed ambition, if not high artistic ability. The largest and most important, painted on real canvas, with a gold frame around it and hanging so conspicuously that all who entered must rest their gaze upon it, was signed David Brandon. The picture represented a wild stampede of cattle on the plains. Cowboys, terror-stricken animals, and clouds of dust were depicted in a spirit which had often aroused the enthusiasm of visitors to the retreat. At the rear of the building, a large yard enclosed by a high board fence was a favorite spot with many of the students for tables with the widest of tablecloths and comfortable chairs were placed temptingly about. Several trees and palms, together with a number of small flower beds, helped in warm weather to make the place very attractive. When Nat Wingate and Owen Lawrence entered the retreat, Late that afternoon, their ears told them before they reached the yard that it had been captured by a crowd of lively boys. And the new student of the Kingswood School immediately noted that his companion seemed to be highly popular. Hello, Nat. Hello, came from half a dozen throats. Zip, boom, hooray for the captain of the stars, called out a boy almost as tall as Tom Clifton. Hello. Hackett. Hello, Talbot, greeted Nat G. There's crackers, too. Howdy, everybody. Fellows, 
Let me introduce Owen Lawrence. The latter was busy for a few moments exchanging salutations. Then he plumped himself down on a chair, which the smiling Terry Guffin pushed toward him. Mr. Guffin was pleased, the round, cherubic face under his chef's white cap plainly showed it. A new customer to the retreat generally meant a permanent customer so long as he remained a boy and sometimes after. Owen was soon holding a rapid fire talk with Kirk Talbot, John Hackett, Benny Wilkins, Ted Pollock, and a heavy set, stoop shouldered boy wearing spectacles and who was invariably addressed as Crackers. Crackers? queried Owen at one of the infrequent pauses. The heavy set boy flushed slightly. A ripple of mirth was communicated to various groups. Ah, ah, Grinnett, he doesn't do it anymore. Do what? asked the new student. Why, at one time he almost supported a cracker foundry, explained Nat, never seemed to be separated from a large bag of them. A continuous performance, supplemented Hackett. And of course such an awful example had to be made an example of, chuckled Benny Wilkins. Anywhere within a five mile zone his name is Crackers. When he gets beyond, some people call him Dan and others Brown. He's been done a brown, too, haven't you, brown? Some greenies may think so. Well, it's a good thing talk like that doesn't mean a black eye for someone. What were you saying, Nat? I'm trying to put Owen straight on who we are and what we are, answered Nat, you see, John Hackett, Kirk Talbot and myself left school at the end of last term and have already begun our struggle in life. So far, it's been something fierce, too, confided Hackett. I'm working for my father, and the howl he raises when I want a day or two off would almost make you run out of the store. John's the meanest apology for a dry goods clerk that ever skimped on a yard of cloth, announced Benny Wilkins. Nat turned toward Lawrence. Ted Pollock, an old chum of ours, is still making the professors at the school throw up their hands in despair. So are most of the other chaps around here. I've seen Benny Wilkins at the school, said Owen. We must whisper that he's seen too often everywhere. He totes around a notebook, must fill one every week. What did you put down today, Benny? Wilkins slowly drew from his pocket the article in question and, opening it, read. For 35 p.m., sized up the candidates for the ball team. No good. 4.40 p.m., Tom Clifton received notification to that effect. 4.41 p.m., Tom Clifton said so much in about three minutes that I left it all out. 4.50 p.m., looked at a book containing logarithms, but decided that Terry Guffins was better. There is hope for you yet, Benny, remarked Crackers, solemnly. Owen Lawrence paid but little attention to the boys outside of his immediate circle, for he quickly noticed that they were apparently but a chorus playing a very secondary part to the principal stars of the retreat. Say, fellows, who is that elderly gentleman who came over to the ball grounds this afternoon? He inquired, 
presently. Several started to answer at once, but Nat Wingate silenced them. Mr. Rupert Barry, he explained. They say he's the oldest graduate of the high school. Has a great lot of the stuff everybody's scrapping for, too, money. Awful queer old chap, confided Ted Pollock. What's all the talk about a new ball field that Tom Clifton is giving off every day? Asked Owen. I was just about to tell you, answered Nat. Hello, Terry. He raised his voice. Are you baking that pie? The white cap and smiling countenance of Mr. Guffin immediately appeared in the doorway. Just a moment, Nat, he answered, rubbing his hands together. Hurry it up, Terry. Well, Lawrence, Mr. Barry owns a large field about three quarters of a mile from the school. And last year, he sprang a sensation on the crowd which some of them haven't gotten over yet. If I'd only known about it at the time, I'd have stayed at the school and won it for the boys, remarked John Hackett. You, scoffed Benny Wilkins. Before night comes, I guess I'll know the particulars, laughed Owen. Everybody keep quiet until spoken to, commanded Nat. Mr. Barry ambled over to the school one day and saw Professor Hopkins. I'll tell him what happened, interrupted Ted Pollock. You weren't there, Nat. I can see the principal now. You can't, declared Benny Wilkins, unless you've eaten too much pie. He came into the assembly room with Mr. Barry. Boys, he said, in solemn tones, you all know our esteemed fellow townsmen. He tells me that on several occasions some of you have attempted to play ball on his lot. Thought you were going to catch it, I suppose, grinned Owen. Certainly did. But the principal switched off on a line of talk that filled the fellows with so much astonishment that it's a wonder they could do any studying for the rest of the week. I know a few that didn't, came from Benny Wilkins. Nat silenced him with a gesture and went on to explain that the eccentric old gentleman who occupied the house on the hill did not go to the school to register a kick, but had actually offered to present them the field in a grandstanding case they should have a winning ball team the following year. When Bob Summers, Dave Brandon and Tom Clifton returned from a trip to the east, they had started things moving with a vengeance. Assisted by Dick Travers and Sam Randall, two other members of the Rambler Club, they got the student body to vote on the proposition to form a regular athletic association. The boys, much impressed by the various exploits of the Rambler Club, responded with an enthusiasm that not only brought the project to a successful issue, but placed in office all those who were champions of Bob Summers and his crowd. Sam Randall became president, Harry Spearman, vice president, Dick Travers, secretary, and Jack Carr, treasurer. And all the representatives from the various classes were hot rears for the Ramblers. Of course, many candidates for the ball team appeared, the most prominent being the big guard of the football 11, Earl Roycroft. Certain very strong rumors floating about, however, seemed to suggest that while Earl wouldn't be given a chance, Charlie Blake, 
a lad who had made a failure on the school team when Nat Wingate captained it, was almost certain of being assigned a position by the coach, Roger Steele. With so much at stake, some of the boys began to feel that the Ramblers were having altogether too much say in the matter. Tom Clifton's calm assumption that he would be a member of the Nine was particularly annoying to some of his schoolmates. Crackers insisted that a storm was brewing. In fact, his agitation had already resulted in the formation of an opposition whose murmuring discontent, if things didn't go right, seemed liable to break out later into a fierce roar of disapproval. The great prize for which the school was about to strive had the effect of putting this small minority into a belligerent state of mind even before the makeup of the team was actually known. When his various informers at length came to a stop, Owen Lawrence drawled. A very interesting state of affairs. I don't like to say anything against the crowd, fellows, but honestly, it seems to me that Tom Clifton is about the limit. Oh, you knocker, snickered Benny Wilkins. A conceited specimen, if there ever was one, asserted Crackers, nodding emphatically. Have you heard the latest? Wait till I get out my notebook, said Benny. Let's see, 5.10 p.m. A revelation by Crackers Brown. He's talking about the dieting racket for athletes. By Jove, he had a crowd lined up in the gym this morning, talking bigger than any MD you ever listened to. Fact. A chorus of groans greeted this announcement. Pies and donuts barred out, I suppose, exclaimed Ted Pollock. I believe if he even saw one in a window, he'd cross over to the other side of the street. Oh, that's right, Terry. Now Wingy was speaking. Crickets, here come the donuts. Mr. Guffin had placed before the captain of the stars and Owen Lawrence as fine specimens of pies as the retreat had ever turned out. An assistant deposited a big plate full of donuts in the center of the table. We won't be able to eat much supper after this, ventured Owen. You only say that because you're not used to guffins, chuckled Nat, these are regular appetizers. What was I saying? Nothing, said Benny. How did you happen to think of it? What kind of work are you doing, Nat? asked Owen. I'm secretary to my uncle, Mr. Parsons Wingate, answered Nat. I can take dictation in shorthand and bang on the typewriter with all ten fingers. And find time to play ball besides? You bet. I get practice enough to keep on edge. The stars can trim a lot of would-be big leaguers. You're going to play the school team, aren't you? Yes. And we expect to give him an awful drubbing, too. Get out your notebook, Wilkins. I'm going to ask a question, said Brown, banging the table sharply. All right, assented Benny. 5.15 p.m. Crackers asks a question. It is this, said Brown, staring solemnly over the rim of his glasses. He who dares to venture within this retreat must be more than a pie eater. He must have the, the, how does that go? Oh, 
Yes, the courage of his convictions, it has to be perfectly straight talk. The question, the question, demanded Benny. You must excuse him, Lawrence. When he starts out to ask anything, he generally forgets what it is before he reaches the point. You have been at the Kingswood High one week, said Crackers, with a stern glare at the grinning Wilkins, and in that time have seen and heard a lot. Where do you stand on this baseball situation? Owen Lawrence pondered a moment. The tongues of the boys were silent. Well, he said, slowly, I'm not one of those chaps who's afraid to tell what he thinks. He beat a tattoo on the plate with his fork. No, sir. I don't mind saying that from what I've seen of the summer's crowd my sympathies are beginning to be with the opposition. Hooray, cried John Hackett. We are all for the good of the school. Do you play ball? Of course. I was on a scrub team for two years. He paused. Fellows, I'm going to try for the Kingswood team myself. Great, great, cried Benny, gleefully. I'll make an entry of that. Think you stand any show of getting on, inquired Nat. Yes. Why not? Hasn't any chap who can make good chance? That's something we have to find out, growled John Hackett. But our crowd's afraid Bob Summers will manage to get most of his own chums on the team besides having the biggest say about the others. Yet that's his scheme will nip it, declared the new student emphatically. I'm going to have something to say, don't you forget it. And just to make sure we won't, I'll make a note of it, chuckled Benny Wilkins.